Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 38, Burial Rites, in which Noob Kaure Amenemhat II expands on the achievements of his father. This episode is brought to you by Mr. Merv Williamson of Queensland, Australia, whose son Peter contacted me as I was writing the episode. Merv is 80 years old and has enjoyed a lifelong fascination with the history of ancient Egypt. Today, Merv is without his sight, but is able to continue learning thanks to podcasts, and Peter tells me the two enjoy the Egyptian History Podcast as a shared experience. Merv, I hope you are enjoying the ongoing tale of the 12th Dynasty, and thank you for listening to the Egyptian History Podcast. May you enjoy life, prosperity, and health for eternity. The year 1927 BCE witnessed its first regime change in 35 years. Kepa Kare Senusaret I had passed into the west during the season of the inundation, leaving the throne to his son Amenemhat II. This prince had served as co-regent with his father for nearly three years, and now took on the duties of sole rule with energy and talent. To distinguish him from his grandfather, Amenemhat I, I will refer to this king primarily by his throne name, Nub Kaure, which means the cars of Ray are of gold. Nub Kaure Amenemhat II was a young and vigorous ruler, destined to rule for three decades. In this sense, he continued the 12th dynasty's run of good luck, as generation after generation of rulers had proved to be capable effective, and long-lived. The stability of this period was a blessing for the time, and it would pay dividends in the wealth and legacy of the 12th dynasty's burial monuments. One of Nub Kaure's first acts was to bury his father in time-honoured tradition. Senusaret's pyramid at Al-Lisht was completed, but it was now time to institute the posthumous funerary cult of the king which would sustain his car in the afterlife and permit him to rule eternally as Osiris. Nub Kaure made several donations to his father's cult early on, including two statues of the late king, one of himself, and various items of cult equipment. These would have included the ritual ads used to open the mouth of the king's statue, as well as incense burners and clothing for Senusaret's divine image. Nub Kaure also donated a land estate, the produce of which would be sent to the temple to sustain the priests serving in Senusaret's cult. The records of these donations were discovered in the late 1970s on a block of red granite in the region of ancient Memphis, 
The block itself contains a royal annal covering approximately two years of Nup Kaure's reign, making it an incredibly valuable resource for the period. Among the major achievements recorded in these annals were a series of expeditions, both military and exploitative, to the coast of Lebanon and Syria. Flotillas of ships sailed from Memphis to the coast of the Levant in order to acquire valuable resources and subjugate local communities that tried to resist. I will cover these events in more detail next episode, but the expeditions will have relevance later in this tale. So remember this little teaser, because Noob Kaure's expeditions to the Levant would leave a legacy in surprising ways, and over a surprising length of time. The royal annals do not survive in their full form, but what remain give us a glimpse of the proper burial of a king's predecessor, and the wealth that would be given to his cult. Statues of the deceased, and the living king, were placed in the temple to innovate Sunuseret's car, while the land donations ensured a perpetual supply of sustenance and wealth. This information is complemented beautifully by discoveries made in the pyramid complex of Nub Kaure himself. His pyramid is at Dashur, just east of the bent pyramid of Sneferu, and it is a crumbling ruin today. But its importance is far greater than you would expect of such a dilapidated monument. In 1894 and 1895, a French geologist and archaeologist named Jacques de Morgan was working in the Royal Cemetery of Dachour, in the general region of Nub Kaure's pyramid. In two seasons of work, de Morgan made a spectacular discovery. The intact burials of Nub Kaure's daughters, Princess Ita and Queen Kanumet the latter of whom had become wife of Senusaret II after Nub Kaure. De Morgan recorded the discovery of Queen Kanumet's burial thus, quote, Like Princess Ita's mummy, Princess Kanumet's head rested on a round circle of beaten earth. At the neck was a collar formed of gold beads and various signs in gold, encrusted with stones of carnelian, emerald, and lapis lazuli. The two ends of the jewel were formed by falcon heads of solid gold, encrusted with lapis lazuli and carnelian. Each of the arms was ornamented with three bracelets. Two, placed near the wrists, were supplied with closures carrying the ankh sign, inlaid with lapis lazuli. The funeral furnishings of this mummy were very resplendent. End quote. The question you may be asking yourself is, how did such a rich burial survive, given that almost every other Egyptian pyramid was robbed long ago? In a public lecture delivered on a Thursday evening in 1899 to the American Numismatic and Archaeological Society, de Morgan gave his audience the answer. After introducing himself and apologizing for his poor English, which in many ways is better than mine, de Morgan explained the situation. Quote, Instead of being constructed with a shaft connecting the sepulchre with the outside, these tombs were embedded in a solid mass of masonry, built in a deep ditch made in the ground. 
The incline leading down to the tomb was filled with tight-fitting blocks, so the hole looked like a solid wall. This unusual mode of construction was unquestionably the cause of their having escaped spoliation. There was nothing on the surface to indicate what lay below, and it was only by the regular process of soundings that the mass of masonry was struck. End quote. The secure burials of Princess Ita and Princess Kanumet were one of the first intact royal burials ever discovered by Egyptologists. Their beauty and wealth provide a glimpse at the riches that must have been buried with the kings themselves, and the unusually excellent security measures put in place for their tombs seems to have been quite effective at protecting the burials. A similar emphasis on security is found in the pyramid of Nub Kaure's successor, Senusuret II, in whose reign Queen Kanumet was buried. This preoccupation with security was an excellent one, that paid valuable dividends. In 1889, just six years before the opening of Queen Kanumet's tomb, William Flinders Petrie, probably the most influential Egyptologist in history, had discovered a golden pectoral and crown belonging to Senusaret II and his daughter, Sat Hathor Iyunet, two golden finds from a single period of time in royal tombs. Clearly, something was working well. The burials remained undisturbed compared to their predecessors, and artifacts survived into the modern era. Heaven knows why it took until the 12th dynasty for royal architects and planners to develop a form of tomb that was actually secure enough to protect the royal burials. But, better late than never, I suppose, this trend would reach an absolute peak in the reign of Amenemhat III, when the king's architects created a monument so complicated in its design that it entered into mythology as the Labyrinth. The whole period of the 12th dynasty, after Senusaret I, is one of increasing emphasis on security in royal burials, and this has paid dividends for Egyptologists today. We possess marvellous burial items, records of donations to funerary cults, and a series of monuments whose architectural design has kept historians occupied for the better part of a century. It may baffle you to know then, that the 12th dynasty pyramids have not been completely explored, with more impressive monuments dominating the skylines of Saqqara, Dashur, and Giza. The humble, decayed pyramids of the 12th dynasty have fallen by the wayside. It will take serious effort to explore these monuments, and unfortunately, time is running out. Today, the ancient cemetery of Dashur is under threat from the local village as the need for community burial space saw nearly 1,000 new graves spring up near the bent pyramid of Sneferu in just a few months of 2013. The pyramid of Nub Kaure, east of the bent pyramid, is right in the line of fire for this expanding cemetery, and the large-scale digging has provided a useful cover for the other, more perfidious habit of looting a Google Maps image that I provided on the website, egyptianhistorypodcast.com, 
shows pretty clearly the hundreds of small pits dug by locals searching in vain for treasure or burials that may have been missed. The problem here is that the region has not been excavated thoroughly, and nobody really foresaw the Egyptian revolution until it began. So the region is under threat, and it's very much a race against time for archaeologists to explore the area properly while keeping more ruthless people from plundering the site. There is something quite chilling about arriving at an archaeological site in the morning to discover evidence of looting. I was unfortunate enough to experience this in 2013, excavating at the Dakla Oasis. The final day of our excavation was cut short when we arrived on site to discover locals had dug deep pits into our excavation trenches. Fortunately, they had dug in an area that was just empty sand. But it's a surreal feeling. A mixture of dread at what they might have found and taken, and awareness that economic desperation or greed can drive locals to seek wealth any way possible. But I digress. Let's return to the reign of Nub Kaure and the burial of his daughters. We know precious little about Queen Kanumet, beyond the fact that she married Sinusuret II. But we do know a little something more about Princess Ita, from a very surprising source. If you leave Dashur by car, and follow modern roads to the east and the north, you will eventually arrive at an ancient community in Syria. 1,365 kilometres, or 848 miles, from Dashur, lies the town of Ugarit, on the coast of the eastern Mediterranean. Ugarit is an incredibly important site in ancient Near Eastern history. It was first settled in the Neolithic period, around 6500 BCE, and by the early Middle Kingdom, it was a wealthy and powerful city-state in Syria. We will meet this city again in the New Kingdom, when the Prince of Ugarit sends letters to none other than Amunhotep IV Akhenaten, king of Dynasty 18. Why is Ugarit important for the 12th dynasty? Well, in Ugarit during the early 20th century, archaeologists discovered small cylinder seals bearing the names of Nub Kaure and a princess named Kenemet Nefer Kejet. How these arrived in Ugarit is a matter of debate. It has been proposed that the items were robbed from the burials at Dashur during the Second Intermediate Period and taken to Western Asia by the Hyksos rulers of that time. I find this somewhat unlikely, given that the burials of the royal women were relatively intact. If I had the choice to steal anything from royal burials, it would have been the jewellery, not a clay cylinder. Furthermore, at nearby Katna, a sphinx of the princess Ita was found in the ruins of a late Bronze Age palace, which roughly corresponds with the Egyptian New Kingdom. Hardly an easy item to take, or one that would necessarily seem the most valuable given the circumstances. The real explanation for how these items found their way to Ugarit and Katna is probably more straightforward. As I mentioned earlier, one of Nub Kaure's more notable policies 
was the dispatch of fleets to the Syrian and Levantine coast, where they attacked cities and acquired resources. In my opinion, it's pretty likely that the clay cylinders bearing Amenemhat's name found their way into the region at this point. Egyptian troops or overseers would have carried emblems of royal power with them, to proclaim their status and legitimacy as agents of the king. It's not hard to envisage these items being left in a storeroom, and slowly, one day, being buried, to be discovered by archaeologists. As for the Sphinx of Princess Eta, well, there is a fairly straightforward explanation for that too. The statue is a pretty one, but is not particularly significant in terms of its subject matter. But it is a pretty good candidate for a different kind of proclamation. As part of Egypt's interaction with legitimate foreign rulers, the Sphinx could have been delivered as a diplomatic gift during the New Kingdom. If there's one thing we know for certain in the late Bronze Age Near East, it's that the giving of gifts between great rulers was one of the most common and important rituals in diplomacy. Letters from foreign kings to Egyptian rulers even ask for specific things, and promise to send significant items in return. It's not hard to imagine a king of the New Kingdom searching for something appropriate to send the prince of a city-state in Syria. His steward searches through the royal storerooms, and stumbles on the sphinx of a minor princess from Dynasty Twelve. The king thinks, ah, perfect, and sends it off to the Syrian palace. Bam, now it's a thousand miles away from where you'd expect, and all in perfectly innocent and sensible terms. So, Nub Kaure, Amenemhat II, and his daughter Eta, are more well-known than usual outside of Egypt. This makes it a little bit surprising that not much more is known of the royal family, or the court, within Egypt itself. We do know a little something about the administration of the provinces in this period, particularly the relationships between local governors and the king. Thinking back to the reigns of Montuhotep II and Amenemhat I, you may remember that one of the key policies put forth by these kings was the personal oversight of provincial appointments. Choosing governors from among their loyal adherents and servants, they maintained a strong control of the administration of the countryside. By the reign of Nubkaure, however, the practice had slipped just a little bit. A full two generations of governors had passed, and some of them had managed to pass their offices on to their children. In effect, the provincial governors were, once again, becoming hereditary. The situation is recorded at Beni Hassan, also known as Menat Khufu, where in the reign of Amenemhat I, a man named Khnumhotep had been appointed as provincial governor. You will find this event in episode 32. Khnumhotep had a son, named Ameni, who had succeeded to the governorship of this region during the reign of Sinusaret I. Now, Armeni's nephew, named Khnumhotep II, took over the duties of his uncle and grandfather. Quote, The majesty of Nub Kaure Amenemhat II, who was given life, stability, 
satisfaction like Ray, forever, appointed me to be hereditary prince, count, governor of the eastern highlands, and prince of Horus, to the inheritance of my mother's father in Minat Khufu. He divided the great river along its middle, as was done for the father of my mother, by command which came forth from the mouth of the majesty of Amenemhat I, who was given life, stability, and health like Ray forever. End quote. Khnumhotep II then goes on to describe all the authorities and territories that Amenemhat I had bestowed upon his grandfather and his uncles, two of whom had served as local overseers in the region. He does this to strengthen his own pedigree, and then comes to the crux of affairs in the reign of Nub Kaure. Quote, Thus, my chief nobility is my birth, my mother having gone to be hereditary princess and countess, the wife of the hereditary prince and count, Neheri, triumphant and revered, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Nub Kaure, who was given life, stability, and health like Ray forever, brought me into the inheritance of my mother's father, because he so greatly loved Ma'at. He is Atum himself, Nub Kaure, who is given life, stability, and health, the gladness of his heart, like Ray forever. He appointed me to be the count in year 19 in Menat Khufu. Then I adorned it, and its treasures grew in all things. I perpetuated the name of my father. I adorned the houses of the cars and the dwelling. I followed my statues to the temple. I devoted for them their offerings, the bread, beer, water, wine, incense, and joints of beef credited to the mortuary priest. I endowed him with fields and peasants, I commanded the mortuary offering of the bread, beer, oxen, and geese at every feast of the necropolis. Greater was the praise at the court than any of any companion. The king exalted me above his nobles. I was placed before those who had been before me. He knew the manner of my tongue and the moderation of my character. I was an honoured one with the king. My praise was with his court. My popularity was before his companions. I kept alive the name of my fathers, which I found obliterated upon doorways, making them legible, accurate in reading, not putting one in the place of another. Behold, it is an excellent son who restores the name of the ancestors, Neheri's son, Khnumhotep, triumphant and revered. End quote. Remember those burial rites and offerings I talked about earlier in the episode? Well, those aren't just rituals for deceased kings, of course. They filter down to every level of Egyptian society, and offerings to the dead seem to have been among the most important rituals in the daily life of average and elite Egyptians. Khnumhotep II was particularly observant of the rituals necessary to honour his forefathers and to make offerings at the small shrines in his community. Such observances fueled the spirits of the dead, and preserved their existence in the afterlife. For his piety, he could ensure his own sustenance and support when he passed into the afterlife himself. 
which he did in the reign of Nub Kaure's successor, Sinusaret II. Nub Kaure himself ruled for approximately 35 years, continuing the good fortune of the 12th dynasty as a period of stability and long reigns. By the time Nub Kaure passed to the west in 1895 BCE, it had been a century since Amenemhat I took power and ushered in the 12th dynasty. This period is generally regarded by Egyptologists as the high point of the Middle Kingdom, the moment when everything was running smoothly. The country was prosperous, there was no immediate threat to Egypt, and the kings were capable rulers who lived long enough to provide real stability for their government. But we are not done with Nob Kaure just yet. Next time, we will jump back in time slightly to explore the king's impressive campaigns and trade missions in the Levant, a small expedition to Punt, and the building program, which may have affected monuments as notable and ancient as the Great Sphinx of Giza. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.